bit uh, longer. I'm going to try not to spend much more time than one uh, in each chapter, but we'll see how that goes But in setting up. I want to welcome with us tonight Beth Williams. She's a missionary to China, and uh, she came back for two weeks a year ago, something like that. So, And then COVID prevented her from going back, but she's looking to go back on the field there. So she's got some cards here, and, and uh, possibly we'll be uh, coming and presenting more in the spring, but I uh, appreciate you coming tonight and being with us this evening. Job chapter 1, we started uh, last week with the assets of Job. Tonight we're going to look at the accusation against Job. Accusations are no fun, are they? Uh, we take accusations from people, and uh, as we're going to look tonight, uh, Job took some serious accusations from Satan to God, and God took some accusations from him. And let's just look at this and kind of break it down. And we'll look at the place of the accusation, what prompted it, the particulars, and then the proposal after the accusation. Uh, looking at verse number 6 of Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came in also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from wa walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Perhaps one of the most soul-searching questions in this book we find right there. Why do we do what we do? Does Job serve God for nothing, essentially? Is he just serving for his own good? And we'll look at that in a little bit. But the accusation that Satan used against Job concerned his motives, and so, as we mentioned last time, it was not Job's sin that brought on suffering. It was actually, in a roundabout kind of way, Job's righteousness that brought on suffering. When trouble and trial and, and all these difficulties come into our life, it is not always because we've done something wrong, although uh, when we sin, we will bear consequences of it. But uh, just because trouble befalls someone does not mean that our nose automatically needs to go down on them and we... We uh, think lesser of them just because trouble comes. It certainly wasn't the case for Job. But let's pray as we start. Father, thank you for this reading your word. I pray you bless it this evening. May we grasp something to be helped to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The place of the accusation here is heaven. Now, the Bible draws back the curtains of the unknown, we could say, because we don't know much. We just see several little glimpses in the Bible uh, another place is 1 Kings chapter 22, 19 through 22, gives another little window of, of what's going on in heaven. So we don't have a lot of description uh, of what goes on behind the scenes there. Uh, but here, there was a presenting. We, we, we'll just talk about what we know here. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now what's going on here is that they evidently are coming to give some kind of accounting, the sons of God, of their work. One commentator put it this way, like the ministers of an earthly sovereign, the powers of the universe are responsible to God for their proceedings and must give account of all transactions in his dominion. There was a day, sort of points out the fact that evidently there was a time uh, probably reoccurring when they came and gave this accounting to the Lord. Uh, by the way, uh, God decree decrees a time and place for us to have an accounting too. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Every single one of us are going to have an accounting at some point. Now, you might ask, what, what extent or to what 
to what detail will this account be? Well, the Bible says that also in Matthew 12, 36, every idle word that men shall text, I'm sorry, speak, but I think it involves texting too, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account of. Now, speaking's bad enough, but texting and all those other things, we're, we're going to give an account for it. That's a, that's a scary thought. The Bible also says pastors are going to give an account of their flocks. In, in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Folks often get a little upset when uh, pastors enter into what they feel is not their business. But, you know, uh, pastor's responsibility is for the souls of his people. And so there's, a, there's always that delicate balance that we always try to make sure we're not trying to interfere. But on the other hand, if we see something, we are to help you along that way of your spiritual walk. So the idea that we can live as we please without answering to anyone, is, is not out of the Bible. This is absolutely, we will answer for how we live, how we act, the things we say, the things we do, we'll answer to God for that. If heavenly beings had to give an account, you better be sure earthly beings have to as well, and the Bible's clear about that. But look at the personnel here. That the uh, sons of God and Satan were the two distinct groups that stood before God on this particular day. The sons of God, uh, obviously, here refers to celestial beings, angels. It also, in the New Testament, in numerous places, refers to uh, believers, uh, the redeemed, the saved as sons of God as well. But in the context here, we're talking about angels or servants of God. They have ministries assigned by God, and so they reported to him about those works. Satan also came among them, here it says. Even though Satan is a fallen angel, and has a terrible curse on him, it seems, according to the book of Job, that he still must report to God periodically. I don't know exactly how that's set up. You know, again, we have this little window here, and we just kind of have an example. Uh, there's not clearly set out uh, how this goes on, or how often, or whatnot. But the word translated Satan here is interesting. It means adversary. In fact, the way that the word is used here is not so much a name, but a description of what he is. He's an adversary. Peter described him as your adversary, the devil, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is called in Revelation the accuser of our brethren. So what Satan does, one of the things he does, is he accuses the brethren, the saved, the Christians. He will accuse. You do something and he's accusing you. And that, that's a terrible thought. By the way, when he accused Job, he was wrong. When he accuses you, is he wrong? When he accuses me, is he wrong? Because he was with Job. Uh, I, I, always, I always cringe at that thought, that there's a lot of times he can point his finger at me and he's not wrong, and that's a sad thing. But let, let's, let's then live the way that he is wrong when he does so. Uh, we see two questions here from God to Satan. Let's look at them in verse 7. Then the Lord said to Satan, Whence comest thou? This question has to do with his whereabouts. This is not an unusual question. If you're a parent, <laughs> or you've been a teenager, or you've been, is not an unusual question, is it? We hear that, and we ask that of our kids. And uh, for God to ask the question of his creatures is logical. The answer to the question, he said, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. 
Well, what was he doing while he's going to and fro? Well, Peter informs us what this involves. He's walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Man, I hate the devil. I just, as a youth pastor for 18 years, I just over and over and over, and we see it with adults too, but the, de- the deception, the destruction of, of, of the lies that he feeds to young people and they just suck it up and they fall victim to his, his uh, terrible schemes. And I just, I just can't stand the way that we, I've seen him destroy so many people. And by the way, what he does in my life too. I mean, it's a terrible thing when Satan gets his claws and his clutches into your family or your life. It's a terrible thing. He wants to destroy. He wants to devour. He's not, he's not happy simply to defeat you. He wants to absolutely wipe you out. And uh, as we see in 1 Peter 5, 8. Hast thou considered, he asked the next question, verse 8, hast thou considered my servant Job? Here God gets a little more specific. He asked Satan if he's observed or thought about or pondered his servant Job. It implied the question that uh, his character is what we're talking about. Uh, the fact of, of Job's character, and he elaborates in a minute, but look at the person in the question here. My servant Job, both the calling of Job and the care of Job are seen in this servant designation. He, uh, Job's calling is that of a servant. Our calling as Christians, children of God, are uh, to be a servant. And man doesn't like servitude, but being a servant of God is the highest calling we can have. Amen? Uh, we uh, ought to glory in being a servant of God. No position on earth is equal to it. One uh, person put it this way, no higher title of honor can be borne by man than to be a servant of God. Now that God should call Job by his name is also encouraging, shows his care of Job. The Bible says in John 10, 3, uh, the good shepherd calleth his own sheep by name. It shows a special care of that person. You may be insignificant in this world. Not many people may know your name. But praise God, one does. Amen? Knows you, loves you, in spite of your mistakes and your failures and your position in life. That's a great thing for us to be reminded of. We're not a number to God. We are a name. Then in uh, verse number 8, he goes on. There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. This praise of of Job by God has a five-part complementary description. Let's look at it. First, we see the ethics of Job. He said, Job was upright. Job was righteous. He was moral. He was honest. Job's friends doubted this, but God said Job was upright. Moral erosion is certainly a part of our society today, but Job had morality. Uh, one of the, I was looking at some statistics today, 74% of Americans would steal from those who wouldn't miss it. 64% will lie for convenience as long as no one is hurt. 93% say they alone decide moral issues based on their own experience. 84% say they would break the rules of their own religion. 81% have violated a law they felt to be inappropriate. Yet 30%, which I think is super high, 30% say they would be willing to die for their belief in God. 
But I got news for you, friend. If you're not going to live for him, you're not going to die for him. And we see people who are, who, who not only in our society, but Christians too, there's a moral decay going on uh, in our time. Uh, Job, though, was upright. Uh, he had ethics. Secondly, the entirety of Job. He was perfect, God said. Now, we mentioned this last time. This does not mean sinless perfection. It's just an idea of completeness. Uh, it says that he was a man of character in every area of his life. Third, we see the esteem by Job. He feareth God. An upright man will fear God. It is wicked people who do not fear God. And my, oh my, but is this not disappearing today in our day and age? There's no fear of God. People do what they want to do, and there just doesn't seem to be any fear of God at all. Chuck Colson said this, People who have no fear of God soon have no fear of man and no respect for human laws and authority. Boy, we see that uh, describing our day today, isn't it? And then fourth, the, here's a word we don't use much. When's the last time your kids sat down to dinner and said, Mom, I eschew these peas. All right? This is what the word means, escheweth evil. Uh, not a word we throw around much. The best thing we could have is maybe shunned or avoided. He avoided evil. This is something we could use more of as well. In our day and age, many people not only... Uh, well, many people seek evil, but uh, even many who don't seek it, they don't eschew it. They don't avoid it the way they should. You know, we ought to be careful what we watch on television. We ought to be careful the kind of music we listen to. We ought to be careful that uh, what we put in through our eye gate, through our ear gate, and we allow in. We're like a computer, garbage in, garbage out. And if we allow a bunch of garbage to be pumped into our minds, it's no, no shock when we uh, find ourselves in bad shape. All right, he had cheweth evil. Then he went on and he said, the, the, we see the excellence of Job. There's none like him in the earth. Now, chapter 1, verse 3, we read last week, says that he's the greatest of all the men in the east. But when God described him, he said, he's the greatest of all men in the earth. I thought that was interesting. High praise from a high place right there. So uh, he had high things to say about Job. Then let, let's get to the accusation. Verse 9. Then Job answer the Lord. Satan's answer to God's question implied that he had indeed looked at Job and taken notice of him. And he asked him this question, doth Job fear God for naught? Now again, the fact that he's accusing Job is not surprising because that's who he is. He's an accuser. He wants to destroy, he wants to devour, and so he's accusing us constantly. In Revelation 12.10, we see that, that he's accuser of the brethren, which accused them before God day and night. He's always about the business of accusing God's people. Doth Job fear God for naught? This dealt with Job's devotion to God. Satan is very observant, seemingly, of our spiritual life. He was of Job anyway. His accusation says here that... Uh, basically leads us to understand that spiritual life is what matters the most. All other areas of our life are secondary to our spiritual condition. Spirituality deals with eternal things. Physical life is not eternal. It's uh, temporary. Uh, but Satan, un unlike many people, knows what is the most important. The skepticism here, Satan's main accusation of Job was that Job's motivation... For his spirit, get this now, his motivation for spiritual living was carnal. 
So he was, yes, he's doing right, but he's got carnal motivation to do it. Does he fear you for nothing, God? Look at what you've given him. Now, naught, or nothing, is our modern, more modern word for it, refers to his material prosperity, all the things that he had. And again, as I mentioned before, this might be one of the key questions in the book of Job. The right motivation is imperative for us in our spiritual life. Why do we do what we do? If you uh, are serving God in, and you're motivated by the wrong, or the wrong reason to do that service for God, we ought to be motivated enough by the fact of what God's done for us on Calvary. Amen? Died for us, gave his son for us. Jesus Christ went through all that for us. We, uh, if, we, if that's not enough for us, then we are operating in the wrong motivation. Job's motivation was in the right place, but it didn't keep Satan from questioning. And motivation is so important. The why behind what we do. Why do you serve God? Is it for the praise of men? Is it to, to be lifted up in the church circle or whatever that is? Why do you go to church on Sundays? Is it to impress neighbors or relatives or get the preacher off your back? <laughs> Keeps calling, where you been? <laughs> uh, why do we do what we do? A carnal motivation exposes a lack of spirituality in your life. You remember in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about that day that we're going to stand before the Lord. It, not, not the great white throne judgment, that's for lost people. If you're unsaved, you'll stand before God in the great white throne judgment. But the judgment seat of Christ is where we are judged not for our sin, praise God, that's been taken care of on Calvary, but for our, what we have done for Christ. And it says that our works are going to be tried by fire to determine what, not size, but what sort. It is. We better pay attention to that little word right there. He, in other words, I don't have, we haven't built the kind of buildings a few uh, months ago, Brother Jeremy and I were out in Lancaster, California, and at West Coast there, uh, at Lancaster Baptist Church at a conference, and man, billions of dollars of buildings and huge facility and thousands of people, and he's doing a great work, uh, you know, just doing, reaching a lot of people for Christ. You put us beside each other, you know, I'm doing nothing, comparatively speaking. But God doesn't say he's judging us for the size of what we do. He's judging us for the sort of what we do. Why do we do what we do? And are you faithful in your area? So God's not going to judge me against Paul Chapel. God's going to judge me by my opportunities and how I responded to them. God's going to judge you the same way. And it's an interesting thing that that it's the sort, not the size, and the whys behind it. Motivation is important. Do we need to be seen and recognized of men to serve God? Do we have to have the carpet, red carpet rolled out for us before we'll get busy serving the Lord? Motivation. That's what Satan was questioning here. Look at, now, now he's going to back it up. Being a good lawyer, he's going to trot out the evidence. Verse number 10. Hast thou not made an hedge about him? And about his house, and about all that he hath on every side, thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. So Satan felt he had justified reasons for the accusation. Two, specifically, both had to do with the conduct of God. In fact, he's criticizing God with his accusation almost as much as he's criticizing Job, which, by the way, is what he's really after. He's always after trying to bring honor away from God. So this is God's fault, he said. You have uh, treated Job in such a way that of course he's going to serve you. You've given him everything he wants. And he's wealthy and he's successful and he's protected. He's just serving you for the goods, essentially. 
Now, these two divine favors that he's using here can be put in two categories. Protection from God. Hast thou not made an hedge about him? And so what Satan said, you, you basically protected him. It, the, uh, it, it's true, by the way, that God did protect Job, and that's not a bad thing, isn't it? Aren't you glad for God's protection in our life? Uh, but can I, may, I just like to give one thought here that maybe God put a fence around Job not to prompt him to serve him, but in reward for having served him. And so uh, that's another way of looking at it. But look at the holes in Satan's premise here. Uh, the, in other words, he's basically saying exemption from trial will make people serve God. Is that true? There's a lot of people with, that were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and never had to struggle a day in their life. They're not following after God because of that. Exemption from trials doesn't make people automatically be drawn toward the Lord. In fact, often it does just the opposite. And Satan's going to find out that it was trials that he's going to be about to unleash on Job here. Those very trials brought Job closer to the Lord than he ever was before. Some, you know, some, with, people react to trials different ways. Sometimes trials come in people's life and it pushes them away from God. Sometimes trials come in a person's life and it pushes them toward God. How we respond to them is going to really give us the success of dealing with them. But this is uh, many saints go th who go through severe affliction grow in faith in those times. David said in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. I don't know if you can identify with that statement. You know, we've, uh, sometimes affliction draws us closer to the Lord. And then not only protection, but he said prosperity. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased. Again, Satan's blaming God here. Uh, it's God who Satan wants to discredit, always. And uh, God had indeed blessed Job. And good, amen. Sometimes God blesses his people. That's a good thing, amen. I'm glad when God uh, pours out. But he says in Malachi that you know we're faithful in giving and we do our part. He'll open the windows of heaven. He loves to bless his people. Nothing wrong with that at all. Satan's going to learn it's not prosperity that prompted Job's faith in God. It was something much deeper. Now, here comes the proposal after the accusation. Uh, by the way, it didn't prove Satan right. It proved him wrong. Job's faith was genuine, as we'll see. But here's what he said in verse 11. But put forth thine hand now, this is what God's talking to Satan, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse, or Satan is telling this to God, I'm sorry. Satan's saying, put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to thy face. I was trying to insert myself into these stories. How many times has that been said about us? How many times have we then went through some of the fires? How many times has Satan been right? Scary thing to think about, isn't it? I want him to be wrong every single time. Problem is, he's not. Sometimes he's right. Thankfully here, about Job, he's wrong. But how many times has he pointed his finger at you and I? And how many times has he been right? The word touch in the context means to smite, to punish, to inflict plagues. Satan wants God to be cruel to Job, to hurt him, to bring bad times to him. Boy, oh boy, how Satan delights in cruelty. He doesn't want to be good to people. He wants to hurt people. Peter said he was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. Uh, he also said in, in uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, he goes about as a roaring lion seeking, seeking whom he may devour. There's nothing kind and loving about him. There's nothing warm and fuzzy about him. He's a wicked, 
hateful, spiteful, devouring being that wants to destroy you. And uh, look at the prediction. He will curse thee to thy face. Satan's wrong here, as he is wrong so often. Uh, again, apply that to us. Hopefully he's wrong there too. Look at the, uh, in, in when he makes this proposal to God, it's not a coincidence that this proposal involves dishonoring God. He'll curse thee to thy face. That's what Satan wants in the first place. He loves to dishonor God and loves to get, God, get God's people to dishonor him as well. So God gives him permission. I want to close with this thought here. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. There's a sovereignty in this permission that I love to see. Because the affliction that came to Job is not because God, don't miss this, could not stop Satan or would not stop Satan. Or, or sorry, just the first. That he could not stop Satan. Satan had to get permission for everything he did to Job. He could not just do it willy-nilly. He had to get God's permission to do it. And I believe with all my heart this is still true. That nothing can happen to us that God does not allow. So when affliction comes, or trouble, trials, difficulties, understand that it might not have been God's... He's not the source of it. He does not tempt any man, nor can be tempted, but He has allowed it. And now how are you going to respond in it? That's the, that's the making of you coming forth as gold and, and better than when you went into that fire. But it's a, it's a great thing for us to realize that nothing's out of God's control. He still sits supreme. God cannot, or Satan cannot bring evil on anyone without God's permission. And then look at the stipulation as well. Only put upon himself, put not forth thine hand. So God permitted the suffering for Job, but at this point it was limited. Later he's going to let him go a little further, but at this point it is limited. Again, uh, this will not, uh, nothing, in the, the, uh, the, physical harm, which comes later. We know that you know, the first round was things taken away from Job, and then Satan came back. Well, if you touch his body, and then God allowed him to touch his body. So the first round, uh, he's not allowed to touch, and later he will be, but only when God allows it again. And it's that same principle here. God not only permits your trial, don't miss this, but he determines how serious they'll be. He determines how difficult they'll be. And he tailors them. The Bible tells us clearly in 1 Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation taken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above your able. So, if you have ever been in the middle of a situation, and you say, it's too much, I can't handle it. Well, yes, you can, actually. Because God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It just seems that way sometimes. Certainly seems that way. But God is careful not to put more on us than we can handle. And here he did the same uh, for Job. I love the fact that whatever we're going through, God's in control of it. He can stop it, and he does stop it, just shy of too much. He's never going to let too much come to where you can't handle the situation. How comforting is that, friends? Isn't that a blessing? That God controls that. 
So we'll look next week. So Satan went forth in the presence of the Lord, and now he goes about to do his dirty deeds. And he's going to try to do everything he can to bring, uh, to bring Job to curse God. And uh, we'll look at that as the uh, things happen to Job as we continue next week. But uh, it's a... Uh